on, on the subject of intercession and standing in uh, a call to the wall, standing in the gap. We've already taught on the purpose and the power of fasting. And today I want to teach you on the subject of effective strategies for praying in the harvest. So this is, as we move into this final week, this week is very focused on the harvest. It's focused on relationships. It focuses outwardly, not inwardly on you. But uh, I believe it can make a big difference. So I want to share with you on this important subject today. We're going to start off with two verses of Scripture that I want you just to focus on. I'm going to put them on the screen. You can turn your Bibles or your devices to them. Uh, may I just warn you that it's very easy when you're reading familiar passages of Scripture, it's very easy to allow your familiarity to shut you down mentally. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that. And you miss maybe fresh new insight, revelation. The Holy Spirit might show you something that you haven't seen before. So uh, I encourage you, don't tune out, don't shut down when you see a verse of Scripture that you're, that you're familiar with. So we're going to start with John chapter 4 and verse 35. So Jesus is speaking these words. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Notice that Jesus is challenging his disciples to realize the urgency and the timeliness of the harvest. He's saying, don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Saying that's something good for next year. That'll happen next season. It's now. Now is the time of the harvest. Let's look at another verse of scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. On the screen, I only have a couple of those verses, but let me read all of those to you. Starting in verse 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing or proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Uh, pause there for a moment. Notice that in this description of the life and ministry of Jesus, it's very kind of a, a big picture view of what Jesus has been up to. It tells us three aspects of his earthly ministry, doesn't it? And he had four, so there's only one not mentioned here. Teaching, teaching in the synagogue, preaching or proclaiming the kingdom, healing, physical divine healing, and the only one not mentioned is casting out devils and deliverance. So those are the four areas of his earthly ministry that you'll find him all throughout the Gospels uh, engaged in. So that's, that's a helpful foundational thought. So verse 36, when he saw the crowds, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was looking out over all the multitudes of people. And he had compassion on them. And he observed them as being what? Confused? Helpless? Like sheep without a shepherd. How many of you think that Jesus might just look at our nation and see a lot of lost sheep? He might look out over the masses of North America and make a similar observation that people are confused, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Who's the true shepherd? Jesus. And I have a feeling he'd make a similar observation. And it goes on to say what? 
He said to his disciples, in reference to what his observation was there, he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So, notice that important connecting word, so, there. So, what do we do about it? Pray to the Lord, the New Living Translation says, to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Other translations say, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. What a challenging verse of Scripture because it brings us right to the point of action. Jesus, his heart is moved with compassion as he looks across the multitudes and masses of people and he sees their condition and he realizes that what they really need is a relationship with the shepherd. And what did he tell the disciples to do about it? Pray. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. Jesus said, the issue isn't with the availability of the harvest. The harvest is there. It's ready. The problem is we don't have enough people who are engaged with the harvest and ready to do something about it. And the first step he gives us in dealing with the harvest is to pray. Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him specifically what? That he'll release workers. Help us to provide more workers into his fields. I was thinking a lot about this in the past few weeks about the subject of how we can, how I can help to equip you to be more effective using godly biblical strategies that work, that are proven to make a difference in the harvest. And my thoughts are that too frequently we aren't really that serious about the harvest. Well, we say we are. We sing about it. We talk a little bit about it. We'll name organizations, harvest this and harvest that. But how serious are we really about the harvest? There's something wrong. Because all you have to do is look at the reality of us living in a post-Christian culture in America. Uh, all you have to do is look at the decline of countries, um, European countries in particular, who once used to be the hotbed of the Reformation and the moves of God. Look at them today. They're a mess. Spiritually, they're a mess. 3% of the nation of France are followers of Jesus. 2% of Belgium follow Jesus. Folks, that's, that's, that's sad when you think about the historical backdrop of those nations. So my point is, something's not right. Something is wrong with our methodologies. Something's wrong with our approach. Something's wrong with the way we're going about the business of carrying out the Great Commission. So I have a suggestion to you. Why don't we go and check out the Word of God? Hmm? Isn't that a good approach? If we want to find an answer to a challenge that we're having in doing God's work, let's go to the Word of God. Now, I won't spend much time on this, but I want to lay this as a fundamental understanding because I'm convinced it's true. There is a model of bringing in the harvest that we find in the New Testament church. So we know that when Jesus gave us the church, it started in Acts chapter 2. And we see the early church and we see the historical narratives of the book of Acts that tell us all about the early church. And one of the principles that you'll find throughout the book of Acts is that prayer plus proclamation equals harvest multiplication. So prayer plus proclamation. 
Proclamation is the sharing of the good news, whether it be one-on-one, whether it be by your testimony, whether it be a tract, whether it be a television evangelism, uh, however you want to proclaim the gospel. The sharing of the gospel is proclamation. But notice that prayer has an essential place in proclamation. So we have to couple together effective prayer with evangelism or proclamation. And if we'll do that, the result will be we're going to see the harvest grow. We're going to see the harvest multiplied. Now let me prove it to you if you don't mind. Let me just show you a couple of scriptures we find in the book of Acts that show us this principle in in actuality. So beginning in Acts chapter 2, we'll see that it says, uh, you remember the story, I won't go back and read the first four verses, but we know that the early church, uh, the disciples that Jesus had invited to come, he extended an invitation for them to come to Jerusalem and to wait there for the promised Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that 120 people gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem, and they were there waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that they didn't wait just one day? Not just two days. They waited 10 days. I don't know about you, but I've often thought, Kyle, what was going on for those 10 days? I wish I had a, 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 a video recording of what must have gone on for 10 days with those people. I bet there were some fights. Y'all think that they stayed in unity the whole time? I think they had to work their way into that unity. It says that they were in one accord. But I think it may have taken a while to get in one accord. How many know the church isn't known for getting in one accord? The body of Christ in general isn't known for that. No. But these 120 people, they came focused on one thing. We want what God's promised for us. We want everything he's got. And they knew that it was going to be the Holy Spirit's gift to them. But what did they do? Not only did they get in singleness of heart and mind, but they prayed. They prayed. And they asked. God for his promise. And what was the result? We see at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, and those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, the same day the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them, the day of Pentecost, that day that it described in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, how many? 3,000 and all. That is a harvest. Would you agree? 3,000 people They got saved in that one day, but remember, they prayed. And then the harvest was able to come in. We also see in Acts chapter 4 an example of this. In Acts chapter 4, it it starts off by describing the early church, and it says, and they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. It goes on to say that Peter and John had been arrested, and in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported everything that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, in other words, the people, the church, when they had all heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That's what you did this morning. We were raising our voices together. That's corporate. That's corporate prayer. Together praying They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Why? Motivated by the reality that their leaders were being persecuted. That the the church of Jerusalem was being threatened. 
And what did they do? How did they respond? They went to prayer. Too often, we go into complaining. We go into complaint murmur mode. But the early church knew the power of prayer as it can make a difference in the harvest. And then we see in verse 31, speak, this, this same group that is speaking of who went into prayer, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they did what? And they spoke the word of God boldly. I mean, not, it wasn't just them being shaken. Even the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's called a, that is a true shaken meeting there, right? The building that they were in was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You say, wait a minute. I thought they were filled with the Holy Spirit back there in Acts chapter 2. Aren't these the same people that were back there in Acts chapter 2 that got filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Yes. You say, well, why does it say that they were filled again with the Holy Spirit? Because we all leak. We all leak. And even though we've been filled with the Spirit 10 years ago or 10 months ago, we need to be refilled. Amen? We need a fresh experience with the fullness of the Spirit in order to live the power that God wants us to live. And so we see that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they did what? So they refilled, and what was the natural response to that was what? And they began to speak the Word of God boldly. Do you see the correlation again? Prayer, then bold proclamation. They're joined, married together. And then we can even see in Acts chapter 6. Uh, the scripture tells us in the beginning of Acts 6 that the church was, there was having a lot of problems. There were some conflicts going on. And so the apostles got together and they appointed seven men. And it says, and the word of God said, the, uh, the seven, speaking of these new deacons, the seven were appointed so that the apostles could give themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the apostles were being burdened by some of the practical care of what was going on in the church. And so what did they do? They delegated, gave responsibility, raised up a new level of leadership. And so these seven deacons began to serve and take care of those problems so that the, so that the apostles could focus what? On prayer and the ministry of the word. You might say, well, I'm not sure how significant that was. Well, you look down in verse 7. It tells us the result. So the word of God spread. So the word of God spread. Why? Because they delegated. Because more prayer was enhanced and made available. So because of that, the word of God spread. It says the number of disciples of Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Are y'all seeing a pattern develop here? What's the pattern? Serious, heartfelt praying added to the bold sharing of the good news of Jesus will result in a harvest. So, here's my conclusion. Based on not only what I read in Scripture, but what I read even in history. And that's that great revivals, great moves of God, Great awakenings are never accidental. They don't just happen. They're not accidental, but they are almost always the result of God's people being in the right place and doing the right things. I'm going to say that again. 
Great revivals, great renewals, great awakenings are never accidental. They're always a group of people who decide to be intentional and strategic. It's when God's people decide they're going to be in the right place and start doing the right things. E.M. Bounds, the great author uh, uh, on many, many different prayer books. And if you haven't ever read E.M. Bounds, you should. It's one of the best. And he, he was speaking about this, and he said, Ask of me is the one condition that God puts in the very advance and triumph of his cause. The only condition is we have to ask. Ask me. Elton Trueblood, the great author and pastor, said, Evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men and women, but it is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. The unrelenting responsibility to make sure that the harvest is brought in. So what I'd like to do now, I'm going to be sharing with you four effective strategies for praying in the harvest. But before I do, I want to give you some prerequisites. So these are four things that you kind of need to have in place that will allow those strategies to work that I'm going to share with you in just a second. All right, so here they are. Number one, pray with urgency. Urgent praying means serious praying. When you pray with uh, complacency, you're just going through the motions. When there's not a, a level of desperation, if you'll just look at the times that something's really happened in your life, usually it's because you've been desperate enough to press in. But when you're just kind of lukewarm, go about it kind of haphazardly or just as a matter of obligation, nothing much really happens. We need to pray with a sense of urgency. Even Jesus said that he said even he works with a sense of urgency. John chapter 9, verse 4, he said, I have to work the works of him who sent me, who was at the Father. So the, he was doing the Father's work, and he said, but I have to do while it's daytime because the night's coming. When the night comes, nobody can do any more work. So in other words, he was saying there's a limited window of time. That When you have that mindset, you begin to be urgent. Stephen Olford, the great preacher of preachers, said, the church must regain the urgency and the compulsion of soul winning and the harvest, or we fight losing a battle. We'll lose the battle for the hearts and the minds of men. Pray with a sense of urgency. And, um, you know, I, I've been in a lot of different groups and heard different prayer meetings, and you can tell when there's urgency about it. When Peter was put in prison and the church prayed, there was urgency. When Peter and John were being threatened there in Acts chapter 3 and 4, there was urgency, and God moved in response. Number two, the second preliminary prerequisite is praying with the Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is referred to as our helper. Helper. He is designed to be your helper. So when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to reside on the inside of you, and he is there to help and to assist in every aspect of life. And one of the areas that he would like to help you in is in your prayer life. He would like for you to rely upon him to be more effective in your prayers. So let me read to you from Romans chapter 8, 
verses 26 and 27. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself will intercede for us through even wordless groans. Notice what it's saying. It says, there are times in our life, how many of you have been there, where it's like, I'm not sure. Either I don't know what to pray for, I don't know how to go about praying for the person or the need that I see. I'm not sure. And you, how many of you have been there? About Ten of you. All right. Well, the rest of you, try it, for, try it and see if it really works. We will. You get serious about prayer. There are times that you hit a wall, and you need the Spirit's help. Now, what he goes on to say is the Holy Spirit himself is willing to intercede. What did I tell you the intercede means? It means to stand in between the need and the, and the solution, in between the, the object or the person or the situation and God as the answer. It says the Holy Spirit himself will intercede for us. Wow. It goes on to say in verse 27, and he, speaking of the Spirit, who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people always in accordance with the will of God. Now this is a special arrangement. God is placing His Holy Spirit in us and then calls us to pray, to do transact business by praying that God's kingdom will come and His will be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And He gives us the Holy Spirit so when we don't exactly know how to pray, the Holy Spirit on the inside of us will help us pray. He will pray through you. He will prompt your prayers. You uh, can even pray with the Holy Spirit. If you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, as Paul said, I pray with my mind and then I pray with my spirit. But it's Spirit-prompted, Spirit-directed praying. And the Holy Spirit, the Scripture said in Romans 8, the good news is He knows the mind of the Spirit, and He knows the will of the Father. So if you know the will of the Father, you can be assured you're going to have what you pray for. If the Spirit is enabling you to pray in a certain direction, focus on a certain number of specifics or whatever, you can know that you're making the best progress possible. Pray with the Spirit's help. He's your helper. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower your prayer life. Number three, pray with a sense of responsibility. I think a lot of us skip this. We skip this attitude. Paul talks about this attitude. He said, I live with a constant attitude, Romans chapter 1. He said, I live with this attitude, this mindset of I'm responsible for the lost. He actually calls it a debt. He said, it's something that I owe. I wake up every day. And he says, I have a great sense of obligation to the people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated. He said, I have an obligation to pray for them, to bring them to Christ, to share Jesus with them. I wonder how many of us live daily with a sense of responsibility to be salt and light. A sense of responsibility to pray, to do our part, to pray for the harvest and be willing to proclaim the good news of Christ. That is a deal breaker and it will make all the difference in the world. There's a great man of God uh, that used to live in Germany many years ago named George Mueller. He was known for being a great intercessor. 
And the story is told about George Mueller, who he was well known for his orphanages and all kinds of ministry work there. But he was also known as a great man of prayer. One day, the Lord was dealing with George about being more engaged in praying for his lost friends and family members. So he made a list, just like you're my top three in 2023. He put five on his list. He put the names of five people who he knew who did not know Christ. And he began to pray for them daily and intercede for them. His history and his story tells us that within the first six months of praying, regling consistently for those five, the first one came to Christ. Got saved. He was like, wow, this is awesome, cool. Thinking that they would all be that easy. He kept praying over the list. Now he's praying over four, right? The next one took three years before they made a decision, but he was diligent, he was consistent, and endured in his prayer life. Then, then over the next 30 years, uh, two others came to Christ at different points. And George Mueller is on his deathbed, and there's one name left on his prayer list. And he shared with those that were closest to him, he said, I have prayed and prayed and prayed, and I'm, God's ready to take me home, but there's still one. Did you know that within six months after the time that George Mueller died, that that last person made a decision for Jesus. I'm convinced it was because of George Mueller's prayer. That's what made the difference. We have to pray with a sense of responsibility. Number four, pray with every spiritual weapon that God has given to you. Realize that when we deal with the subject of prayer, we're dealing with the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm suggests that it's not all the work of God's Holy Spirit, there are conflicts and battles going on in this very room, even. In this neighborhood, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You say, what are you talking about? All you have to do is read the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6 says, in, beginning verse 10, it says that we're involved, that we ought to walk in the power of God and wear the full armor of God because we're involved in a battle. We're involved in a, in, in a war. It's a spiritual war. It's been called the invisible war. It's because it happens in the spiritual realm where your physical eyes don't see it, but it is still real. And our way to engage in prayer is we have to use every spiritual weapon. Ephesians 6 goes on to explain the whole armor of God. It says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Wear it. Denise was praying into the armor of God this morning. We need to wear it. At the close of that, it says, and praying with the Spirit at all times. It's talking about engaging in spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict. But you don't want to do it without the armor of God and walking in the full authority of Jesus Christ. But once you understand that and you can engage at that level, you're using your spiritual weapons. You and I have the authority to bind powers of darkness. You and I have authority to pray over even the spirits that are dominating people's lives and keeping them in bondage and keeping them in darkness and keeping them from coming to Christ. Spiritual warfare, this kind of praying, is critical to bringing in the harvest. All of us have the right privilege, but we have to use it, just like Daniel did in chapter 9, we know that Daniel had received a word from the Lord. 
and he was waiting and praying for the complete revelation to come to him. The Bible tells us that the messenger of God, the angel of the Lord, was on the way with the word for Daniel. Do you know what happened? He got held up, slowed down, resisted, opposed by what? How could an angel be slowed down? Because he was in direct conflict with a demonic stronghold. The scripture calls it the prince of Persia. It was a demonic stronghold that ruled over that whole region of Persia. And that demonic stronghold opposed the angel of the Lord. That must have been a pretty important message that God was bringing to Daniel to have that much spiritual opposition. Amen? What did Daniel do in the meantime? Prayed. Did you know the scripture tells us that that message was delayed for 21 days? Three-week delay because of a spiritual stronghold that was holding back the delivery system of God. You and I can make a difference in the harvest if we'll learn to pray using our spiritual weapons. All right, you ready for the four strategies? All right, let me give them to you. Here we go. Make note of them and use them. Just remember that prayer is our most formidable weapon. Okay? When it comes to the harvest, it is, a, it is an essential weapon, but it's also the one that we're the least skilled in, and it's the one that too often even Christians are adverse to using consistently. So here we go. Four strategies for the harvest. When we're each of these, I'm going to mention these with the word claim. And the reason I'm doing that is because once we get into a position that we know what the will of God is in a matter, when you know what God's will is concerning something, not only can you petition, but you can actually be more authoritative, more aggressive in it, more assertive in it, and you can lay hold of it. To claim means to lay hold of something. So I claim that. That's my order. You know, I'm claiming that. It's paid for. Now I'm claiming it. Now it's yours. There's a lot of things that God wants us to claim as his citizens, his kingdom kids. And we need to learn to approach certain things that we know are the revealed will of God, and we can lay claim to them. So I've got four areas that relate to the harvest that you and I can stand boldly and claim. Number one, claim open doors. Everybody say open doors. Now, why would we want to claim open doors? So that the gospel can reach a certain area or region. We need open doors in order to do that. Let's look at what the scripture says. Colossians chapter 4. Paul is challenging the church at Colossae and the surrounding area, and he says this, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful. Remember we talked about that the other week? Be watch and pray. Being watchful and thankful. And then he adds this. Oh, by the way, don't forget, pray for us too. He's talking about him and his apostolic team. That God may open a door for our message. So that, what's he going to do when he sees an open door? The purpose is to what? To proclaim the good news of Jesus, right? He repeats the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. He says, because we're doing this and we're thankful to you, because a wide door, he refers to this one as being a wide door. That's what I like, wide ones. A wide door for effective service has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries. That's not just people. That's spiritual adversaries, too. 
He said, listen, God's opened the door, but we still have to fight the good fight of faith. He also refers to this open door in 2 Chronicles 2.12. He said, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, I came whenever a door was opened for me. You and I, if we're going to be effective in praying in the harvest, we need to pray and claim open doors. Open doors to areas that have not been penetrated with the good news of Jesus. Open doors in people's lives and opportunities. An open door is, a, is an opportunity. It's a window. It's something that a door is something that you walk through, right? And you can lay hold of and claim open doors again for the purpose of the kingdom of God. This isn't for selfish purposes, just for advancement of you, but for the kingdom of God. I don't know whether you know this, but back in the days of uh, Charles Finney and some of the early awakenings in this country, uh, a number of evangelists who were traveling, doing evangelistic work from area to area, uh, learned the important discipline of intercession. They would actually take a team of people and they would send the team of people into the area where they were going to go and hold the crusade. And the team would go there and just pray and just intercede. And they would be there for sometimes weeks. And then the evangelists and their team and all the logistics had taken place. They would come in and they would just it'd be like a bopping up campaign. Because why? The battle had been won in prayer. It's funny. Later in Billy Graham's ministry, not the very beginning, but later, he actually applied this same methodology. They began to send in advance teams when Billy Graham was going to an area to do a crusade. They would send an advance team just to pray. Praying for open doors. And some of the other open things we're going to talk about. All right, number one is what? Claim what? Open doors. Number two, claim open minds. We need to claim open minds. Why? So people will be able to receive the good news with an open mind. The scripture tells us, Acts chapter 26, referring to the ministry that God had given to Paul. Lord said, I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. God wanted to get the light into their minds. He wanted to open their eyes, open up their minds to the truth. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the God of this age, who's that? That's Satan. That's a little g there. Okay, The God of this age who rules the world system is Satan. It says the God of this age has done what? Has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You know anybody who's been blinded to the truth? Mm -hmm. So that the result of that blindness is what? And you're blind. You can't, what? You can't see the light. Can't see where to go. Can't see what you wouldn't know truth if it smacked you up right side of your head. Why? Because your mind is blind to it. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Then now in prayer, we can be really specific. We can be really focused to pray and to use our spiritual weapons to pierce this veil of darkness that clouds people's minds from the gospel. I think too often we've been, yes, appropriately emphasizing getting the good news out, sharing your testimony, making sure that we uh, support every kind of evangelistic endeavor that there is, but we haven't coupled together with it praying and piercing this 
veil over people's minds, this deception. But we have to do both. So we can deal with the God of this age because we have authority in Jesus' name. We've got authority, and we can, through our prayers, we can actually pierce that blindness that clouds and blinds the minds of unbelievers. You met someone before that, does, that doesn't matter how many times you shared the love of God with them, doesn't matter how many good deeds you've done with them, doesn't matter how many times you invited them to church, they're just still love. It's just like, it just bounces, just bounces right off, doesn't it? You know why? Their minds are blinded. The devil has blinded them to the truth. So we have to get strategic. We have to get really serious, and we have to get strategic. Is everybody okay? Number three, claim open hearts. Claim what? Open hearts. This is key. Why? So that believers will invite Christ into their hearts. For God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. So here the Apostle Paul is talking about this light that has come into our own hearts so that now we can live for him. We need to claim open hearts. So we need to claim open doors, open minds, open hearts. And again, we do this where? In our prayers. And finally, number four, we need to claim open heavens. Open heavens. Do you know what an open or closed heaven is? When it speaks of heavens, it's not talking about the starry sky. It's talking about the, the heavens between us and there's different levels of heaven, all right? So heavens is the atmosphere, and there are areas in which it is closed, or it is difficult, or it is uh, resistant to the things of God. And it is different from area to area, region to region, city to city, country to country. The level of open to closed heavens is different. And where there is a greater expression of the body of Christ, where Christians are more active, the heavens are more open. And when there is more sin, when sin abounds, there's more darkness going on, guess what? The heavens are closed. Look, I, uh, with, I don't want to be critical at all. I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about areas. Um, I am so glad that God has not called me to Northern Virginia and to Washington, D.C. metro area. Because I can go up there and hang out for maybe two days, and I'm, I'm done. Yes, traffic is a part of the problem. But anyway, it's, it also has to do with the heavens are dark. And shut up. Yeah, I mean, we need to make progress in that area, but, but there is a difference between the, the atmosphere over certain areas. You, you go to New Orleans and travel from one side of town to downtown, go to a certain district, and there's a vast difference between the heavens in that city. It's just a reality. So look here at what Isaiah 45, the Lord is speaking through the prophet. Open up, O heavens. Now here the prophet is speaking. Open up, O heavens, and pour out your righteousness. Let the earth open wide so salvation and righteousness can sprout up together. Isn't that great? You can use that in your prayers to claim open heavens. I suggest that we claim open heavens over Hampton Roads in the 757. 
I suggest that we claim open heavens over certain neighborhoods and over certain areas where we know are sin-infested and corrupt and have issues going on and where there's a significant drug issue or uh, corruption of different kinds. Let's, let's, do, let's do our work at every level possible, which includes open up the heavens, open up the minds, open up the hearts so that the work of grace and the work of God can expand. Can I hear an amen? amen? Would you stand with me? Four strategies. They'll work. But we have to do the work and be effective in praying in the harvest. Hallelujah. I want to challenge you to pray with me, but I'm going to ask you to do something. And it's, um, I think it's only appropriate that I ask whether or not you want to sign up. In other words, you're, you have the mind that says, Lord, I, I want to be a part of that prayer army. I want to be a part of those that are praying in the harvest. And if you're here this morning, you said, if you can say, Lord, sign me up, raise your hand. He'll see it. You can put it back down. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we declare that we're ready to sign up for the prayer army that is helping to bring the harvest in. Jesus, you said the harvest is great. You just need more workers. We know that a part of that work is prayer, intercession. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would let us apply these prerequisites and these strategies in our daily lives and realize that we can truly make the difference in some individuals and even in a region. Lord, that we can make an impact and transform the power of our prayers and our proclamation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Prayer teams that are signed for this morning, please come be here up at the altar, and Denise is going to come and release you. I'd like to pray for us as we go, so can y'all pray? Father, as we leave this place of your presence, of this place of security and peace. Father, we take up our assignments that you've given us. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us, Lord, in the next week to pursue you, that you would stir us up, Father, with a renewed passion and vigor and, and vision to run hard after you and follow after you, Father. Father, we ask that you would... Um, just strengthen us and, and cause us to carry the anointing of God with us. We thank you that you've appointed us to be your ambassadors. And Lord, may we represent you well. Lord, may we carry your anointing and be lighthouses for you everywhere we go. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you all.